Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me, if you would please, to the Old Testament book of Esther. The Old Testament book of Esther, one of the, one of the greatest testimonies anywhere in the Word of God that tells us about the sovereignty of God. And even when we don't discern that God is working in our lives, perhaps, the things that God is doing behind the scenes. I want to bring a message this morning entitled, A Woman's Influence. A Woman's Influence. Esther uh, chapter 4. And let's stand together to to read the Word of God. We'll be reading uh, the chapter in its entirety. Esther chapter 4. The Bible says, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, There was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak. Now by the way, Aren't you glad that our mamas didn't give us some of these names? (laughs) She sent garments to clothe, uh, excuse me. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's units who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days." And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, 
And hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray together. Father, we are so encouraged in the word of God to read about how you used people, how you called them, consecrated them, strengthened them, and gave them everything that they needed to make an impact for you. God, the scripture says you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's still your business today to call your people to go and be salt and light to their culture. God, help us to do that. Lord, we want to honor our wives and our mothers today, and we pray for them that you would strengthen them to make an impact in their circles of influence. May they know today how much you love them, and may they understand your plan for their lives. And may we be found faithful. Lord, the Bible says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. May it be your good pleasure today that through the power of your spirit, someone would come to Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Most have no doubt heard about the legendary basketball star, Larry Bird. We know that Larry Bird played for many years for the Boston Celtics and he later coached the Indiana Pacers. Now while we know what he did with his life, most of us perhaps don't know anything about his past or the influence of his mother. He grew up in French Lick, Indiana in a large family that always struggled financially. And then to make matters worse, in 1975, his father committed suicide. Now, Larry Bird's mom was left with six kids and absolutely no money whatsoever. She could have given up, but she didn't. She could have given her kids away, but she didn't. She could have created an attitude of bitterness within her children, but instead she said, okay kids, now it's time for us to really see what we're made of. Chuck Swindoll writes, in an overpopulated world, it's easy to underestimate the significance of one. There are so many people who have so many gifts and skills who are already doing so many things that are so important. Who needs me? What can I as one individual contribute to the overwhelming needs of the world? But the truth is, you are you. In fact, you are the only you in the world. Edward Everett Hale says, I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. 
And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. Folks, when you read the Word of God, you see how oftentimes it's been God's plan to raise up an individual. It seems like most often He doesn't raise up people in masses, but He raises up one, and then through that one, they live in such a way to impact their world. I think of how God raised up an Abraham and called him to go to a new land because God was going to build a new nation through him that would end up being God's chosen people and through them the Messiah would be born. I think of how God chose Moses. I think of how he chose women like Deborah, one of the great judges in the book of Judges. How he chose Rahab who hid the spies. How he chose Esther here to save her people. God's in the business of raising up one. Now you know in Ezekiel 22.30 there's a rather sad commentary given. The scripture says it's God speaking and God says there I looked for someone to stand in the gap and build up the walls and intercede lest I come and destroy the city and behold I found no one. How sad. God looked for one and found no one. But again, God is in the business of taking one and transforming them and through them transforming others. I think of the example of Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley, of course, the mother of Charles and John Wesley, she had 17 children. And she spent one hour each day praying for her 17 children. She took each child aside for a full hour every week to discuss spiritual matters and to pray for them. Now here's some of the rules and the principles she set down. Number one, subdue self-willed in a child and thus work together with God to save his or her soul. Number two, teach him to pray as soon as he can talk. Number three, give give him nothing he cries for and only what is good for him if he asks for it politely. Number four, to prevent lying, punish no fault that is freely confessed, but never allow a rebellious, sinful act to go unnoticed. Number five, commend and reward good behavior. Number six, strictly observe all of your promises that you make to your child. Good principles to live by. Well, folks, in Esther chapter 4, we see the influence of a woman. We see the power of just one. And it's a testimony to us to never underestimate what God can do in our lives. Moms, it's a testimony to you to never underestimate the influence that you can have. Three things I want us to see this morning. First of all, I want you to notice with me a situation of despair. A situation of despair. Look again at verse 1. It says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. 
Now to understand what is going on as we come to chapter 4, we really need to be uh, acquainted with the book of Esther as as a whole. Let me set the table a little bit so you can understand the context. The setting for the book of Esther takes place in Persia, modern day Iran. Now, before March of 1935, modern-day Iran was simply known as Persia. Now, today, Persia, or Iran, continues to be a thorn in the side of Israel. And when you look at biblical history, we see that it's always been this way. The book of Esther lets us know what happened to the majority of the Jews who stayed behind when Cyrus came to power and he gave the edict that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. Now you remember what happened before this. The Jews of the southern kingdom, Israel had been divided between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now the northern kingdom's been destroyed altogether. They they didn't even exist anymore. And then the two tribes of the southern kingdom, Judah, still existed. And because the southern kingdom followed in the footsteps of sin as her sister, the northern kingdom, God said that he was going to judge her also. But instead of destroying her, he was going to send her into exile. And so in... uh, In the 6th century B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, came in and destroyed the city and took many of the people captive to Babylon for 70 years. Now, after 70 years, the Persians came along and they conquered the Babylonians and Cyrus the Persian issued the decree so that the Jews could go back to their own land and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild their homes and the temple. Now we read about what happened to the minority who went back. We, we read in books like Malachi and, and uh, Haggai and Zechariah and Nehemiah and Ezra, what happened to those who left Persia and went back to Jerusalem? But what about the majority who didn't go back? You see, the majority had gotten used to living in Babylon, now Persia. They'd gotten used to living there. They'd built businesses there. They were doing quite fine in that society. And so when Cyrus came to power, defeated the Babylonians, told them they could go back home, most of them didn't. Now what happened to them? What happened to the majority who stayed? You see, if it were not for the book of Esther, we would not know what became of the majority who stayed. And so Esther tells us that storyline. Now back in chapter 1, I really wish this morning we could have just had time to to read the first uh, first three chapters leading up to this. But anyway, if we were to go back to chapter 1, we would meet the Persian king. His name was Ahasuerus. Now it's believed that that was a title like, like the Caesars. Of Rome, or, or like the pharaohs of Egypt, Ahasuerus was his kingly title. 
It seems that his actual name was Xerxes. Now Xerxes was a very large man. He towered over all of his contemporaries. But history also tells us that as a leader, he didn't come close to being what his father Darius the Great or his grandfather Cyrus the Great were. He simply didn't have their mental capacities or their leadership skills. But nonetheless, he was the most powerful ruler of the day. And so far, he's gotten off to a pretty good start. Soon after his ascension to the throne in 486 B.C. and prior to the events of the book of Esther, he had brutally crushed revolts in both Egypt and Babylon. Now, he would soon meet his match. He was getting ready to lead his country into battle against the Greeks. And the Greeks were going to overpower them and destroy them and be the next superpower of the day. But at this point in the book of Esther, Xerxes is feeling pretty good about himself and so he hosts this regal dinner for all of his governors, all of his officials all over Persia and this festival lasted for 180 days. Now scholars believe how we're to interpret that is he would rotate in a certain number of the governors. He would rotate them in and have a big celebration and then send them back, bring another group in. It's not likely that he shut down the whole country for six months. But nonetheless, at the end of the six months, then he did shut everything down and he brought all of his governors, all of his rulers and their wives to town and they were going to have one big last celebration. Now at this celebration, he wanted to show off his wealth. The purpose was to probably consolidate all of his rulers together. They were getting ready to go into battle against the Greeks. And so it was kind of like a pre-war pep rally. And he wanted to show off for all of his people and all of his leaders his great wealth and his great strength. And he wanted to get everybody on the same page before they got their army together and marched out against the Greeks. Well, it seems like the biblical writer wants us to understand that despite all the wealth and all the strength of the Persian Empire, there's beginning to be some cracks in the nation. And it tells us that we dare not judge by outward things. Outward they look really good, but inwardly not so good. You know, the Bible tells us that some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. And what we also see here is that even the wealth, of power, the wealth and power of kings are no match for the hand of sovereign God. World leaders all down through history up to the current times believe that they're the ones in control. They're calling the shots, but they're not. God's the one calling the shots. And he raises one up and he puts another down. Well, we see this big party going on. And in chapter 1 also, we see that the king, King Xerxes, allows the queen Vasti to have her own separate party for all of the ladies. 
Now, it's speculated why he did that. He probably wanted to be seen as being generous and letting the queen uh, on his nickel get all the ladies of the empire together and, and have a big celebration on their part. And here he is having his big celebration and all the men are there and they're getting drunk and all the women are meeting and right in the midst of that he gives orders that Queen Vasti wearing nothing but the royal headgear would appear before all the men so everybody could see her beauty. Now the Jewish rabbis in their writings, in their targums as they're called, Indicate to us what's going on here. That what Xerxes is wanting his wife to do is to come out and basically a strip tease show that she's going to be in the nude. And in fact, the Jewish rabbis write that Vasti would do this same thing to all the Jewish women so that she would offend their morals and their sensibilities and their faith in God, she would have all the Jewish women that were her slaves to work on the Sabbath in the nude. Again, the rabbis write about this. And so what they're saying is she's to come in and this striptease show going on and so all these drunken men can see her beauty. But notice what she does. She refuses Good for her. But uh-oh, now we got a problem. I mean, if here, here's the king of the land and he's getting ready to lead us out into battle against the Greeks, he's not even in charge of his own household. He's, he, can't even, he can't even tell the queen what to do. Uh-oh, we're in serious trouble here. So what are we going to do about all this? Well, after they take counsel, they decide Vashti's got to go. Everybody's got to see that she can't do this and go against the word of the king and still be the queen. She's got to go and let a search be made among all the other uh, young women and all the virgins and, and let there be another queen who will come to reign in power of Vasti. And so that's what they do. But folks, behind it all, you see the sovereign hand of God at work. There's two parallel storylines going on here. On the one hand, King Xerxes has a wicked assistant by the name of Haman. And Haman despises the Jews. I'll say more about that in a moment. But, but here's this wicked, king, uh, wicked assistant, Haman, who's determined to destroy all the Jews. And here is Queen Vashti being moved out of the way so a new queen can get in place to save them. So two parallel lines of story going on. Now why did Haman hate the Jews so much? This goes all the way back to when the children of Israel were leaving Egypt and got out into the wilderness, their battles against the Amalekites. The Amalekites. That's Haman's people. And there was a long-standing feud between the Amalekites... And the Israelites, and in fact, God said because the Amalekites tried to destroy Israel and wouldn't help them in their Exodus wanderings, God said, I will be at war through all future generations against the Amalekites. 
And you'll recall when Samuel anointed Saul as king, Saul was to go out and destroy all the Amalekites, and he didn't, and he saved the the king Agag, and, and Samuel showed up, and Samuel had to end up putting Agag to death. And so there was this long-standing feud between the Amalekites and the Israelites. Now that explains the hatred that Haman had for the Jews. But anyway, Haman comes to power under Xerxes and everybody has to come out and bow down before Haman and do homage to him and recognize his authority too. But this Jewish man by the name of Mordecai, Esther's cousin, he won't bend the knee to Haman. And so Haman learns that Mordecai is a Jew. And so he says, not only am I going to put this guy to death, but I'm going to get rid of all the Jewish people. And so Haman goes before uh, the, the Persian king. He goes before Xerxes and say, there's a, there's a people living in your kingdom who are not like us. And it really won't prosper you to let this people remain. You need to put them all to death. You need to exterminate them. And basically King Xerxes says, Okay, Haman, you go and do whatever you need to do with them to get rid of them. And so folks, if we understand all this going on, we begin to understand what the book of Esther is all about. God is moving Queen Vashti out of her role. He's moving Esther into that role. Esther's a young Jewish woman, and through her intercession with the king, her entire people are going to be saved. And so God is at work here. Now as chapter 4 opens, the scenario is that Mordecai has just learned of Haman's plans to destroy all the Jews. And so that explains the despair that chapter 4 opens with. 15 million Jews are hanging in the balance. 15 million Jews in Persia, it would seem, are about to be destroyed. You know, sometimes we look at things going on in the world and we read the headlines and we see all the chaos in the world and we might be tempted to think, God, where are you? I see all this evil and suffering going on and I see the people of God being attacked and being persecuted and being opposed and persecuted. God, where are you? Where are you at work in the world? And we need to see that God is very much at work. He's very much at work behind the scenes. And he was here. While Haman is scheming his wicked plan, God is bringing things to pass to bring Haman to an end himself. And he uses a woman to do it. He chooses a godly woman. Moms, I want you to think about this. All of these power struggles going on in the Persian Empire. Here's Xerxes, here's Haman, here's all these governors, and here's all this wicked plan to get rid of 15 million people. And God raises up one woman who's going to make all the difference in the world. That's how God works. 
Again, remember Hannah who prayed for a son and God gave her Samuel? Samuel ended up being one of the giants in Israel's history, one of their main prophets and leaders. And again, I remind you of Susanna Wesley, the impact that she had with all of her 17 children. And think of Charles and John and what they accomplished. God used Charles Wesley and John Wesley to shake Two continents in revival. One woman's influence. And that's what we see here. Folks, in many ways, we're in a crisis today. Chuck Colson, in in a book some time ago, Against the Night, he, he wrote, We're entering a new dark age brought on by relativism, radical individualism, and materialism. People have grown accustomed to the dark, and they don't even realize that the lights have gone out. In a society like ours, we need examples in life and conduct. In America, every single day, at least three kids die of child abuse. Every day in America, every day, 500 children ages 10 to 14 begin using drugs. Every day... 1,400 young girls in the United States of America get pregnant out of wedlock. Among teens ages 15 to 19, shootings are the third leading cause of death. Suicide rates have tripled in the last 30 years. Things look bad. Things look bad for Esther and Mordecai and their people at that time. And Mordecai understands it is not a time to be silent. This is a time to act and this is a time to pray. Folks, what could happen today if God's people, if godly women and godly men got on their face before God and cried out in behalf of this country? 2 Chronicles 7.14, God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven, I will answer their prayers, and I will heal the land. You hear what God's saying? As the people of God, we don't need to just point fingers and say, what about all them out there? We need to look at our own hearts and say, what about us? And are we on our faces before God and are we doing what we can do? That's what Esther was going to be called to do. Be a woman of prayer and action. Who would step into this situation of despair and God would use her to make a difference. The second thing I want you to see this morning with me is an attempt at evasion. Look at verse 4 and then we'll skip down to verse 10. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Verse 10 says, Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, and that's to be put to death. 
except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. First of all, she just tries to avoid the situation with Mordecai and send him clothes so he'll get out of the sackcloth because you see, according to their etiquette of the day, Mordecai, having sackcloth on at the king's gate, actually put his life in danger. That was considered not the place to have on the garments of lamentation. And so she wants to get him out of the clothes that will put him in danger. But I want you to notice even beyond that, her evasion. She gets word back to him, says, Tell Mordecai, my cousin, what in the world can I do? Just one person. Moms, do you ever feel that way? I'm only one. There's some moms that have to be the spiritual leader of the household because the dad won't. Or maybe the dad's gone all the time. Ladies, don't underestimate what you can do. Remember, Jesus said we're to live our lives as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And it said that one grain of salt has 2,000 times its power in proportion to its size. Now that's influence, isn't it? We're to be the salt of the earth. Look at what is going on in the culture. What does Paul say in the book of Ephesians to Christians how we're to live differently? He says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In Ephesians 4 he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They become callous and given themselves over to every kind of, of sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But he goes on to say, but that is not the way that you learned Christ and so he says in Ephesians 5 redeem the time make the most of your opportunities because the days are evil evil days just give God's children the opportunity to shine all the brighter amen make a difference Moms, don't relinquish over over your influence to others. That's initially what Esther wanted to do. She wanted to disconnect from this problem altogether and kind of live by that motto, hey, let's just live and let live. Don't do that. She couldn't do that. Remember what God had told them even when they were under the rule of the Babylonians? God told him, he said, listen, in Babylon, I want you to work for the good of the land. Don't go to this foreign land and, and be a bad example there. Work for the good of the land. Be, do what you can do. Don't try to evade what you can do. Do what you can do for the good of the land. Because if the land prospers and the culture prospers then you too are going to prosper. We can't just disconnect. 
And that's why in the Bible, older women are told in Titus 2 to be that example to younger women and invest their lives in them and disciple them. And men, by the way, it says the same about us, that the older men among us are to disciple the younger men. We're to look at the situations around us and we're to step up to the plate and do what we can. Look at what Mordecai tells Esther beginning in verse 13. It says, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, Esther, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This has been listed as one of those great speeches in all of history. A speech kind of like Winston Churchill made in the 1940s when he rallied the English to war against Hitler. In May and June of 1940, the way he, he called them together and rallied the troops, that's essentially what Mordecai is doing here. And he's saying, Esther, who knows? But what God has put you in this place of privilege where you are today for this very time. Folks, if only more of us would live with that kind of realization for such a time as this. We need to look at where we are, what's going on around us, and we need to see God's appointments. God's appointments for us. Now, the third thing I want you to see today is a decision of resolve. In verse 15, it says, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. A decision of resolve. Esther decides she's going to risk her very life. She's going to go into the king. She is going to intercede for her people with the attitude, if I die, I die. She finally dies to herself and her agenda. And that's the key. I think of when... Nate Sane and Jim Elliott and those others went down to South America to be missionaries to the Alka Indians to carry the gospel to them. You remember what happened on that beach there in South America? They were speared to death by the Alka Indians, by the very ones they'd gone to evangelize. Later on, there was a man who wanted to see where those missionaries had died. And a pilot took him up. When they got over that beach, that that man told the pilot, he said, circle here, that's the beach where they died. And the pilot said, no, it's not. He said, I know it is. That's where they died. The pilot said, no, it's not, sir. The man said, sir, I know it is. 
All the coordinates that we had, that's where they died. And the pilot said, sir, I was in the church service that night when Jim Elliott and Nate Saint laid their lives on the altar to God and on that altar is where they died to self. And that's what Esther does. Dies to self. That's what you and I must do. The Christian life isn't to be easy or about theory alone. The Christian life is about how you and I die daily in our own individual worlds. And then how God can use us if we'll do that. Moms, where does that begin? It begins with conversion. Jesus said in John chapter 3, he said, Unless someone is born again, they will not see the kingdom of heaven. Do we want to go to heaven? Of course we want to go to heaven. Jesus actually said in Matthew 7 that the majority of people on earth will not go to heaven. But he said in John chapter 3, there is a way you can go to heaven. When you die, he said, you must be born again. He didn't say, have you said some nice little quick sinner's prayer, raised your hand in a service, filled out a commitment card, but he said, have you been born again? Have you been born of the Spirit? Have you been changed? Have you been regenerated by the Spirit of the living God? Has that ever happened to you? If not, why don't you say, God, regenerate my heart, regenerate my life. I want to be born again. And then, as Paul says in Romans 12, after that, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable act of service. He's saying, in light of all the privileges that you have in your life, what God has done in your life, that you might be saved and might be a part of his family, it is the only reasonable response to have is that you die to self and make your life an offering to God. Have you ever done that? We think, oh, if I yield my life to the Lord, that's scary. What might God call me to do? But you know what? Everybody who has done that responds eventually with the comment, why did it take me so long to do that? Because God gives you freedom and peace and forgiveness and liberty and an abundant life. Have you ever died to yourself? Have you ever been born again? And after being born again, put yourself on that altar and say, God, in light of all the privilege that you've given me, in light of all the privilege I have of living in this nation and especially being a part of your family, being a part of the church and able to cry out to you, Abba, Father, in light of that, in light of God's salvation, your reasonable act of service is that you make your life a living sacrifice. Moms, have you done that? If you do that, you might be surprised at how God can use that kind of resolve. What God can do through you. We know, we know the rest of the story in the book of Esther. Esther goes into the king with that resolve. That if she dies, she dies. 
She doesn't die. The king extends the scepter to her. He invites her in, says, what's on your mind? She sets up this banquet. She's got a plan. And and all these leaders come to the banquet, Haman included. In the process one night, Xerxes can't sleep. He has all the chronicles read of things people have done for him. And he reads in there about what Mordecai had done for him long time ago to spare his life. And he says, what's been done for that man? He honors Mordecai. Then Haman's like, uh-oh, things are not going well. And then finally Esther exposes Haman and his evil plot to kill Esther and all of her people. Haman is the one who ends up being executed by the king. God used one woman to save the lives of 15 million Jews. She died to self, was consecrated to God, made a decision of resolve in her heart, lay her own agenda aside and be God's and say, God, here am I, use me. Moms, will you do that? I want to ask you to bow your heads in prayer with me for a moment. And this morning, as every head's bowed and every eye closed, pray for our homes, pray for our mothers. Folks, these are dangerous times in which we live. Our moms and dads encounter enormous challenges with young people today. Every generation has its own temptations to sin. But I want you to think of today. Think of the social media that can be used for good or bad. Think of all the drugs that I spoke of a moment ago. Think of the pornographic culture that we live in. And then on top of that, when we send our kids off to many of the universities in their freshman year, the professors mock their Christian faith and try to tear that down. Huge challenges. Look at how key convictions even are changing in society today. Things that we might have questioned would ever happen. And they're happening today at breakneck speed. And you know why? It's because what Paul says in Romans 1. These things are happening in a society as evidence that God has taken his hands off and given people over to go their own way. Way. He said it's evidence they don't know God and they're under the wrath of God. How are we going to live, on the other hand, in this culture? Will we stand up for biblical principles? Pray for the church that the church will be holy. And that we won't continue to be silent. That we would be bold. Pray for moms. Pray for homes. Pray for marriages. Pray for the church. Pray for yourself. Moms, what's God called you to do? Have you been born again?
Life is a vapor. Again, think of those words Jesus said. Unless a person is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Have you been born again? If not, I want to appeal to you that you come forward in a few minutes and say, Pastor, would you just pray with me? I want to know what it is to be saved. I want to know what it is to be born again. Would you just pray that in my life over the coming days and weeks, God would do that transformation in me? Maybe there's a lady here that is just overwhelmed with what she knows God has called her to do. Perhaps she just wants to come to this altar this morning and say, God, give me strength. Give me resolve. Lord, we ask you today to work in the hearts of your people. Again, thank you for the, for the ladies, for our moms, our wives. God, work your special work today in them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.